open your Bible to Luke chapter 22. You can see me, I can't see you, but pretend that we're here and I'm watching you. Uh, Open your Bible, get to this place. It's so powerful to see the words in front of you. It's so powerful to have that open and, and not just take my word for it for what it says. There's power even in the structure of the words and the placement on the page of of how God has put this scene together, what's happening in the life of Jesus in this moment uh, for us to learn from. You know, God has been using Luke like uh, like a doctor would use medicine or prescriptions. Um, God's using this book to bring hope and healing to us. Jesus is the good doctor. Uh, and, and we are being let into this intimate dinner party that Jesus is having with his closest friends. Um, you will benefit greatly, by the way, each week by just reading ahead. In your sermon notes um, link underneath this video, um, you can find the passage for next Sunday. I would encourage you at some point during the week, take a, take a moment and read the passage. Here's a little news flash. Um, it's not a typo. We're doing this same passage next week. So this morning's sermon is part one of two, okay? So as we read the passage this morning, check this off your box. You've already read ahead for next week. Woo-hoo! Efficiency. Um, but also, don't just, don't just look ahead. Look back on the previous week. You're about to invest 45 minutes of hearing from the scripture, hearing it taught, letting it soak into your life, figuring out how to live on it. Don't just read it now. Look back on it. One of the tools that we have for that are community group questions. Whether you're in a formal community group at this church or not, these are questions for you to, to, to prod you, to encourage you, to stir your thinking more, to get you to look at other surrounding scriptures that might shed light on whatever specific uh, issue you are dealing with. Let me give a warning. We haven't even gotten to the text yet. It's a great text. We're going to get there. But let me just give you a warning. We are entering some very familiar passages of Scripture. If you've grown up around the church or if you've been a Christian long enough where you've, you've read this over and over, there can be a tendency to have the familiar just sort of sift off into our subconscious and, and we start thinking about other things. Why? Because our brain says, we already know this. We've heard this before. We know where the story's going. Let me tell you this. God met me. God catches me by surprise week after week. In fact, this is why whether you teach on a screen like this or to your children or to a friend, as you pass on what you know, as you internalize what you know and pass on what you know, it's just called discipleship, God will meet you in the text in surprising ways. There are things for you to learn and glean from today uh, because the word of God is alive and active. I've been seeing this so clearly in this season. Scriptures I've known for a long time are taking on a brand new um, insight for me. Look at Hebrews 4.12. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, rendering of this in the message, he kind of goes medical motif with it. Uh, and, and thinking about Jesus as the good doctor, I love this. Just, just listen. His word is powerful and sharp as a surgeon's scalpel. 
There is precision here of of diving in, getting past our doubts, getting past our fears, even getting past what we think we already know about what we might be reading. So right now, you've already carved out, you're already tuned in, whether it's Monday afternoon or whether it's Sunday morning, or whether John Garza, I saw you out front in your massive chair watching us from there. That's a little greeting to you. Wherever you are, be intentional about this time and say, God, I'm here. The, The word is open. I want to hear from you. So let's do that. Let me open in a word of prayer for that, and then we'll, we'll, we'll just jump in. God, we thank you that there's power in the word. The most important words I will say all morning will be those from the Bible. They're eternal. You've written things down for us to get a handle on where we are in the story and where the story is taking us. So God, right now, I have so much I want to communicate. I'm so excited about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm amped up. God, I pray that you would settle me down into what you would have me say. God, I pray that you would settle people who are hearing this. Maybe they go to church all the time, and this is the most normal, natural thing. God, maybe someone is hearing this, watching this for the first time. They don't even know what to expect. But God, I pray that you would meet us here in a really powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about mealtimes for a moment. In fact, really the next couple of weeks we're, we're, we're looking at an intimate dinner party. It's a mealtime. The Last Supper is sort of the formal way of doing it. It's dinner with Jesus. The last dinner Jesus is going to have with his friends uh, before the cross. You know, mealtimes can be hectic. Uh, my wife and I, after getting several little people from uh, the, the stage of missing their mouth most of the time to hitting their mouth most of the time, um, we thought we had this whole feeding thing dialed in. And that is until twins came along. And while they weren't technically biological twins, the effect was the same. They were functionally twins. And when they showed up, uh, we realized that two people needed sustenance um, at the same time. And so we began to reshape and reform how this looked. Go full screen for a minute and take a look at this. This is how my wife developed uh, what it looks like to feed two little people um, at the same time. To say that these two were an armful is a massive understatement. In fact, our meal times uh, became extra work. They became extra messy. They became extra loud. They became extra costly. The truth is that every single person in our family had to step up in some significant way when these two little cherubs showed up. The fact that our family doesn't want to eat just one time a day, which is psychotic, they want to eat multiple times a day, means that meal times showed up extra fast. It took so much time to clean up after breakfast that all of a sudden lunch was here, and by the time you get that figured out, it's already dinner time. So everything ramped up in some significant ways. One more extra. Our mealtimes became extra awesome. Uh, This is a picture of our very first Thanksgiving after I brought Eli home on the far right. And let me just point out a couple of things while while, while it's full screen. Um, Notice that in this picture, um, some people are smiling. uh, Some people are blurry. Um, Tegan, if you zoom in on her, if if, if, if you could look at her face, she's pouting. Um, Some are crying. Some are not paying attention. Isn't this what mealtime is like at your house? Like this is, there's a beautiful turkey, it's all set up, it's all good to go, and this is just normal everyday life. Eli and I had showed up, we we left Ethiopia on Thanksgiving morning, um, and after one of the most stressful times in my entire life, getting him home, uh, we showed up, and this was Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, um, and, and it was 
Extra awesome, even though it was anything but picture perfect. All that variance, by the way, around the dinner table is a picture of our spiritual family. That, that's called the church. The church is your spiritual family. And, and just like our home family, mealtimes get messy and hectic, and, and that's how it is in our church family. More on that later. I want to ask a redundant question, okay? Have you ever had dinner time not go according to plan, right? The answer is yes. So really, it's just a, it was just a matter of when was the last time this happened? Maybe it was a special anniversary. Maybe it was graduation. Maybe it was Thanksgiving or a birthday. But maybe it was just a random Tuesday this last week, right? Dinner time not going according to plan seems to be the plan, right? Like that's the norm. And, and, there, and, and what we see as we eat together as a family and try to draw mealtimes together is there are lots of ways for mealtimes to get messy. It gets messy on a lot of different levels. Uh, Mealtimes can be great, but they can also blow up in your face. You know, I've come to learn is this. You don't stop trying to eat together just because uh, you're not perfect at it, right? None of us are perfect at it. But failure is not fatal. What do you do? You just try again. You get hungry physically again. You get hungry relationally again. And so you just keep going. And you keep trying this whole thing called eating together. Over the next two weeks, we're going to see Jesus' small group make a complete mess of dinner time. It's messy on a lot of different levels. Here's the really good news. Jesus saves the messy. Jesus stays with us in the messy. He does more than just clean them up. He actually cleans up his disciples again and again and again and again. What's more is because of his power, disciples become those who help others in their mess. Disciples are those who Jesus' power enables them to move towards the mess. Jesus is having a nice planned meal with his friends. He's been looking forward to it. He just delivered the most enduring and effective object lesson known to man. The bread and the cup. And then he, he pairs that with, I think, one of the most portable, executable directives you can imagine. Remember me. Right? Like, what are we supposed to be doing as Christians? Well, here's something. Bread, cup, remember me. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I can remember those things. So guess what? Christians have been doing that around the world for more than 2,000 years. So that's what's just gone on. Magical moment. All kinds of paintings around that where everyone at the table is facing the painter, right? No one has their back to the painter. Um, That's just how it is. That's how painters stage things. No one seems to paint the very next scene. The very next scene would look like a food fight, mess, spills, crying, tears, blurry. Um, So that's what we're going to do. Here's the thing. The, the, the meal is about to get really spicy. And you know who spices it up? Jesus. Jesus does this on purpose. Let me just have you look at this title image for a moment. Uh, let me say a couple comments. One is this, that making a mess is normal. It takes practice over time to not make a mess. Uh, secondly, there's various ways to have meals go wrong. Relationally, spiritually, practically, 
And Jesus walks through us with all these different kinds of messes. Third, it's cute when you make a mess when you're little. It's less cute when you are a grown-up. Why? Because the stakes rise. The stakes are higher. And number four is this. Your growth comes not in spite of the mess, but in the midst of messiness. Let me say that again. Your growth comes in the midst of messiness. Not only your messiness, but others' messiness as well. All right. Through it all, know this. God saves sinners. When I'm saying mess here, think sin. Miss the mark. Miss the mark, right, with the food. It's all over the place. God saves sinners. We all miss the mark of perfection in big and small ways. There's no point in denying it. No good comes from embracing it and saying, well, this is just who I am, and there's just a mess everywhere. Here's the, here's the better or best way. The best way is to acknowledge it. The best way is just to acknowledge it. I keep missing the mark. Acknowledge the mess and invite Jesus into the mess. In its simplicity, this is a part of what it means to be a Christian. We're not denying the mess. There's no mess here. I'm good. We're not just embracing the mess. We're admitting it. We're acknowledging, yep, I'm kind of messy. You want to see this stain over here? This is where I can't seem to get my mouth with the food. It just keeps ending up over here. We invite Jesus into the mess, and he meets us there. So this morning is about the disciples' relationally messiness. The disciples are relationally messy. You know what? They are indicative of all disciples then and now of Jesus. Jesus drops the bomb that one of them within their small group is going to betray him. Now, a quick side note before we get into the text, and that's this. If you ever wonder why people don't get along, let me clue you in. Look to God. Look through a biblical lens. God has told us why people don't get along. The Bible tells us there is a wall of hostility that divides people. You know that, that, that lovely song we sing at Christmas time? Far as the curse is found. God's grace covers the curse as far as it's found. You know what part of the curse of original sin is? It's this dividing wall of hostility that exists between people. Nothing new in 2020. Go ask your grandparents or your great-grandparents. Hey, did people get along when you were younger? Did people get along in other seasons of life? The answer quite simply is no. They've always had a struggle to get along. And I'm not just talking about betrayal, right? Those are the big things that get the, the, the spotlight. But how about indifference? Indifference over time is just as painful as outright betrayal. So a wall of hostility separates individuals and groups of people. Listen to Ephesians 2.14. This is in your notes. You can just circle it if you want. But it says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is a wall of hostility that exists between you and people like you, people and people unlike you. It's the curse of sin. And the only way to break it is Jesus himself. 
So you want to know where does the relational mess come from? It comes from the curse of sin, right? That's where, uh, that's where you, can, you can trace it back to. So let me show you a couple of things this morning, and we'll cover more next week. But number one is this. Suspicions are the bricks that make up this dividing wall of hostility. Luke chapter 22 Verse 23, after Jesus drops the bomb that someone at this table, someone in our small ministry group is about to betray me. And verse 23 says this, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Even after serving three years and living together with the greatest senior pastor on earth, this ministry team was quick to reveal sinful suspicion. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but when I say suspicion, I'm not negating discernment. I'm not negating the fact that there are right times to discern between things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sinful suspicion, and they are quick to reveal sinful suspicion. Suspicions are the bricks of the wall that divide us. Jesus brings up this hard truth of the betrayal. There's a lesson in that. Jesus doesn't avoid the hard. He doesn't dance around it. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't run from it. He spices up the meal by saying, uh, incidentally, one of you is going to betray me. You know, could you pass the hummus? Right? Like all of a sudden, how, where's that going to take the, the meal time? All the disciples do what comes naturally to them. They begin to look around and go, how could you? And they begin to to eye one another with suspicion. Maybe your family is like ours. I love planning adventures for the family. There's nothing happier for me than than having a whole Saturday ahead of us, loading up the van, and we're off on some adventure. I know we've got all kinds of great things going on. Sometimes we're not even at Branham Lane, right near where the church is, before already there's just chaos in our van. Sometimes as we head off on adventures... We have to pull the van over, we have to take a time out, and we have to reaffirm something that we are committed to as a family. And my family knows this phrase, we say, hey guys, let's just recommit to doing the hard work of getting along. Can we do that? Let's just have a a do-over. We haven't made it very far, you're bickering, I'm bickering back at you, time out, time out on everything. Let's commit to doing the hard work of getting along. We say that all the time. Let's do the hard work of getting along. If you struggle at getting along, guess what? That's biblical. There's a dividing wall of hostility. Keep struggling. I'm glad you struggle to get along. What's the alternative? Not peaceful harmony with no effort. The alternative is giving into that. That's called embracing the mess. I guess this is just who I am. I guess this is just how we are. I guess this is just how our family's going to go from now on. Wrong. Keep struggling to get along. This is biblical. We need lots of help knowing how to get along. Fortunately, God tells us we know how to live in the household of God because he's told us every single week we put up a different one another verse in the bulletin so that you can have that sitting in front of your face of how to get along. There's more than 150 of them. We just keep working our way through them. We highlight them because we need reminding of them. 
Do you know that not all the one another's are positive? Look at our verse uh, this week. And they began to question one another. Right? It's not a good kind of questioning. It's accusational kinds of questioning. I can just hear them. Hey, aren't you the one that Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan? I think it might be you. Yeah, and someone else might say, well, you're the one who never speaks up. All you ever do is criticize when someone else has an idea. And someone else says, yeah, well, I heard, and off we go. This is familiar territory if you are a parent. And if you're a parent of grown kids, just come to my house for dinner one night. I know it's COVID, so you have to sit in the front lawn and listen through our window. But come to my house some night, and you'll remember. It'll just bring back all the great memories of what's happening. Someone... uh, Someone left their dishes in the sink, didn't flush the toilet, spilled the OJ, like whatever the thing might be said. And here's how it goes in my house. Now, you only children, you'll have to let me know how this goes in your house. But I was raised in a family of three brothers, and I'm currently the ringleader of a crazy circus. So in my house, when something like that goes on, it is met with a chorus of not me's. And somehow our kids seem to think, like, not it. On the, on the field of play. Somehow that gets you out. If you say it quicker, and if one person says it, you're still ahead of like a bunch of others if you can get your not me in there quickly. And somehow this seems like a good line of defense for our kids because they keep doing it, even though I don't try to ever reward that. But not me can quickly make the jump into deflecting away from me if one name is put out. Hey, I, I think I saw so-and-so in the kitchen. Man, the others will quickly jump on that and go, yeah, I think I saw that too. Why? It's deflecting away from me. That's all I care about. My kids are doing what comes naturally to them. The disciples are doing what comes naturally to them. Looking at, how could you? I can't believe one of you would do this. And so it goes. Getting along is hard work. We get this from James 3.18. It talks about a harvest of right living with God and right living with one another is possible. But think like a farmer. All harvesting requires hard work over time. Do the hard work of getting along. Grab that phrase and borrow it. It's biblical. It takes hard work over time. This is how you clean up the relational mess. This is how you grow in the midst of of the mess. You know what the antidote to suspicion is? It's this. The antidote is trust. Trust is the antidote to suspicion. Jesus knew who his betrayer was. He thought it was wise to put that out there and let Judas know, hey, I want you to know that I know, and so that's enough for now. Jesus throws it out there, and then he doesn't name the person specifically. In fact, we know this because later on, another gospel records that that he dismisses Judas to go do what he needed to do. All the rest of the disciples thought he was going to go pay for, for, for the meal, like go tend to something. Jesus knew, and he wanted to let Judas know, hey, I know, and I want you to know that I know. So, so Jesus doesn't name the betrayer. Can we keep our eyes on Jesus and trust that him knowing is enough? Maybe that would keep us from this preoccupation that we can struggle with about what might be wrong with everyone else around us. 
Maybe Jesus didn't name Judas to reveal their own sinful suspicions that were a heartbeat away. At the mention of disloyalty, man, it just bubbled to the surface. Maybe he didn't mention it to get them to inspect their own loyalty. God, is it me? Could I be the one? Am Am I capable of betraying my Lord? I don't know why he didn't name him in this moment. But can we trust that God knowing is enough? God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. We can leave ultimate justice and vengeance to his all-seeing, all-gracious, all-just ways. And that's enough. In fact, here's a principle that proves true. Trusting God paves the way for trust to replace suspicion in our relationships to one another. When we trust God with our relationships, when we trust God with our ultimate happiness, when we trust God with our entire life, when we trust God to see and take vengeance the way he sees fit, we can let it go. It can open the way, it can pave the way for trust to be built between people. Many people struggle with this. I've been burned once, never again. And that dividing wall of hostility adds brick after brick after brick after brick after brick until they're completely isolated. Now, we might be reading this one verse and go, phew, glad that's over. That was kind of awkward. Awkward dinner conversation. Can we just get back to this nice, intimate meal that we've put a lot of planning in? The disciples went ahead, found the upper room. We got all the... It's Passover. Can we get back to the meal? I guess not. Look at the very next verse. Verse 24. Very next verse. This is why I want you to see it in Scripture. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. From who's the worst to who's first? I mean, if your meals sound anything like this, take heart. Jesus' small group sounded like this. Dinners can blow up in your face. All the hard work that you put into it can get messy in a relational way, very, very quickly. First John 2.16 has three things, sort of the trifecta, the evil trifecta of loving the world, and one of them is the boastful pride of life. Man, this is, this is, this is a, a, an evidence of that. This is where they go with this. They want to know who the greatest is. This was Muhammad Ali's life verse, I think. He saw this scene, he's like, I already know the answer. It's me. I love how real and relevant the Bible is. It's as timely as dinner two nights ago, right? I mean, you look at this and go, yeah, that's my family. It falls apart pretty quickly. So if suspicion are the bricks of the dividing wall, comparing is the mortar that sort of holds it together. There's a dividing wall of hostility, even between your closest family, the people you chose to commit and love. Comparing is the mortar that holds these suspicion bricks together. The disciples launch into comparing with each other. Now think about this. Nations do this all the time. Regions do this, right? Where's your accent from? Are you NorCal or SoCal? All that kind of stuff. States and cities do this. Races do this. Churches do this. Families do this. You and I do this. Comparing. Do you know that comparing kills all kinds of things. Comparing kills love. Comparing kills unity. 
Comparing kills creativity. Why? Because we're always comparing. We're trying to measure up to the people we look up to and get away and be better than the people that we look down on. It kills creativity. Comparing kills possibility. We're limited by just the people that we see. And sometimes we set our sights. I guess that's how you do it. Let me measure up to that. God says, man, that's the floor. That's not the ceiling. Keep going. Comparing kills. It involves judging and ranking, which gives way to sharing your findings with your friends. And guess what? The Bible has a word for that. It's called gossip. Don't do it. It's sin. It always tears down. It's bad for the speaker. It's bad for the listener. Don't even participate in it. Become someone who's known as, you know what? They're not good to share good, juicy gossip with because they bring the light of truth to that. And that's just convicting. So I'm not sharing with that person anymore. Comparing invites a world of sin, and it kills relationships. Jesus chooses to spice things up by, de- by, by declaring that someone is going to betray him. They begin you know, looking at things and, 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 and doing these things. I, I imagine part of why it broke out as to who the greatest was is they began to think about themselves and maybe even make a case as to why for sure it wasn't them that was going to, to do it. You know, self-reflection is a good thing if you're measuring yourself against Jesus. What they do is they immediately begin to compare themselves with one another. You know, comparing leads to either pride or despair. Think about it. When you compare, it leads to pride. I am so much better than that person. Or it leads to despair. We are so awful as a family compared to that family. Comparing leads to pride or despair. Either way, it renders you in pain and it takes you out of the game. All this energy going to comparing when it should be going toward the mission. You know, we have a thing we call heading around here. And heading is just a a metaphor. These these three intense areas of focus that God has been steering our church for. What does simple mean? It means that we're aligned. We're, We're mainly about meeting together in large groups and meeting together in small groups and living it out in our neighborhood. Andres said this in the playground video. We are committed to family. We're committed to living like an actual family as a spiritual family that God's put us. And we're here to lift up and support the family. The third part of heading is gifts. We are absolutely convinced that on your spiritual birthday, you're born again and you're given supernatural abilities and you all have them and we are committed to all of us using them. When we first started this series, um, we, we committed to a few things. One of the things that we instinctively knew was this, we better sail the waters that we are in. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that God has put us in this neighborhood at this moment of time. So rather than live theoretically about what other places and things are doing, we're going to be committed to discerning this area. And secondly, we also said, you know, we are committed to not comparing our church family, which in this metaphor is a boat, with any other boat, with any other church family. There are different size boats that require different crews to navigate them in different waters, going at different speeds. We trust God for our shape and speed. We refuse as a church to look down, up, or over at other boats to see how we are measuring up. We have and will continue to look to our captain, God 
who placed us here. We are committed to keeping our eyes on Jesus individually and collectively. He is our captain. We will get from him our identity, our directives. Anything less is destructive. Can you put it back on picture in picture now, please? Note how Jesus responds when this goes on. What he doesn't do is as instructive as what he does do. Which of us would not be tempted when we just talked about a pending storm? We're pouring our life out. We're talking about our blood being poured out, our body being broken for you. And then right at that moment, an argument breaks out questioning one another. And sometime later, maybe in the next breath, an argument breaks out as to who is the greatest. Which of us wouldn't be tempted to throw our hands up? Guys, I just told you an earth-shattering truth. I'm about to be betrayed. And you want to make it about you. (laughs) What about me? This is my hour of need. And for three and a half years it's been about you. Don't you guys get anything out of this? Here's what's powerful. No turning of the tables here. Jesus doesn't just go, wow, let's do that one again. No turning of the tables. Instead, Jesus goes on to instruct them in a radically new, supernatural way of living and relating to one another. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Who's the worst and who's the first arguments are not very fruitful. They don't build up the speaker or the listener, and they actually reveal a lot of ignorance. Jesus is taking the paradigm and flipping it completely. We use an inverted uh, pyramid, an inverted triangle around this place because this is biblical leadership. You want to get more in leadership here, that means you go lower. Take a triangle and flip it upside down. If you want to get more, then you actually go lower on on the triangle and you actually serve more. Actually, don't flip it. Sorry, that's wrong. Leave the triangle just the way it is. But you grow from top to bottom. So in other words, the, the bottom person is carrying and supporting and serving more and more and more. Be faithful with those that God has you serving here. He'll give you a bigger plate. That's growing in leadership. That's the inverted view of what it means to climb the ladder of success. So what's the antidote to sort of the cul-de-sac of comparing where you just go round and round looking at each other? It's celebrating, right? You celebrate others instead of compare yourself with others. The relational mess that the disciples make show us something that is true of every single one of us. Everyone you ever meet longs for greatness. They long to be um, seen as great and known as great. We're attracted to glory. And secondly, everyone you ever meet longs to be seen, to be acknowledged. People are starving for attention. They show it in different ways, but they're starving for attention. This is why people stay in relationships 
or go back into relationships, even though it's hard, even though it's so difficult and they have experience of it blowing up in their faces. Both of these are good and from God. Our longing to be great in this life and our longing to be seen in this life. These are both good and from God. In fact, it shows off the image of who God is. And these are both stained by sin. Jesus doesn't shy away from hard truth, like betrayal, nor does he shy away from celebrating good in those around him. Look at verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He's celebrating them. And I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what are the trials he's talking about? He brings up the betrayer, but he's quick to celebrate. You're the ones who stayed with me in the trials. What trials? Well, for three years, they've been on this you know, rather intense missions trip. They've had severe opposition. They ventured away from their safe Jewishness into Samaritan country, into Gentile country, into all kinds of foreign places, and all of this while skipping the Hilton hotels and nice restaurants. So they've endured with Jesus. Jesus is saying this, I see you. I celebrate you. You were made glorious on design, by design, on purpose. Great job. Now shine. Keep going. This is not the end. Keep leaning into this. Finish the race. A kingdom is coming, complete with feasting and joy and thrones. I'm inviting into, to you, you into all that already is mine. Listen to this passage from 2 Corinthians 3. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Catch this. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Do you catch that? From one degree of glory to another. Jesus is incrementally growing us into his image. The theological word for it is called sanctification. Jesus celebrates good. Whether that be wine at a wedding, random children on the streets, or perseverance of the faithful in the midst of trials. Comparing misses the abundant life, but so does false humility. There's a weird thing that goes on with Christians, and, and we think somehow that hiding who we are and not shining is somehow helping. Hiding is not humble. You don't show off God as great by diminishing who God has made you to be. What is one of our points of heading? It's gifts. We're convinced everyone has gifts, and everyone ought to be using their gifts. Our body does no good when one part of our body, in humility, shuts down and hides. So, that means this. Leader. If you are a leader, you don't honor him by hiding your leader, leaderness. Right? If you're a leader and you hide that in humility, you're not honoring the one who designed you that way. How about a servant? If you're a servant... Um, thinking you could never serve 
then that just wastes energy. It sort of like just steers away. Get to serving. If you're hospitable, get to being hospitable. On and on it goes. How about comparing? If God made you a thinker who can't carry a tune in a bucket, quit trying to join the worship band. Sing your heart out, especially in this COVID season. But when you're here, belt it. But you know what? God made you a thinker. Think. Strategize. Be intellectual. We need that in our church body. Quit comparing yourself to the person that you're not made to be. Start celebrating those around you and you'll stop comparing. How do I stop comparing? You just start celebrating those around you. You know, we get lots of practice and training to nurture celebrating around our family simply for the fact that we have 11 birthdays throughout any given year. And again, these show up every year, so we get a lot of practice. We have a few traditions around our family as to how we celebrate the birthday person. Eli turned 10 this week, the big double digits, so we had a birthday a few days ago. And, and Eli got to pick out the meal, and then during that meal, each person goes around, and, and we look at that person in the eye, and we share what we love about that person. Everyone in the, in the family shares what they love about the birthday person, or maybe in some way that they've grown, that they admire how they've grown or changed. Uh, we, have, we had a few off uh, in different places, so, so they FaceTimed in. They, we, we all love this moment where we just get to hear this, this, this great thing of being celebrated. Um, so, we, so we did that. We also put a slideshow on where it's all pictures of just them. This is a big deal in a big family. You get to pick the menu, and all the pictures have you in it. This is kind of a, a, a big thing. We all had this great laugh because this picture of Eli showed up. And as it showed up, little Tate, who is six years old, he put this together in his mind. He goes, wait a minute. It wasn't even COVID times yet. So here's Eli being an innovator about wearing masks, and Tate put it in his mind that, wait a minute, we weren't even wearing masks. We all had a really good laugh about that. You know, the simple beauty of birthdays is to remember to sing over that person, to just celebrate that person, and just, and just you know, realize what a gift they are. God gifts families to you to sing, to see, to celebrate the wonder of who you are. I love Eli. I'll be singing over Eli for as long as I have breath. But it's not just formal times like birthdays that we do this, right? They're just part of the equation. Each day, in fact, several times a day, you eat. What if you just start there? You thank God for the meal, but you also thank, you thank him for the people you're eating with. What if you began just every meal to celebrate those who were sitting in front of you. How much joy would come if we kept intentional about celebrating a meal, uh, celebrating people instead of just the food, right? It, it, it could come in the form of a question. Asking how your day was could be sort of a rote thing that you're supposed to do and then you don't listen. What if you ask how your day was and then you actively listen to that person? You gift them with your full and undivided attention. Man, that's powerful. It could come in the form of an action where you just come up to a person and just say, are you all done? Can I clear your plate for you? And that's just done as a simple act of selfless. I celebrate you. You rest. Man, it's my joy to serve you as a member of the family. How could this radically change relationships outside of the family? 
to just find all that you can celebrate in others and get after it? What if you think this way? I want to get on the bandwagon of everyone around me that I possibly can. My neighbors, my kids, my teacher, my boss. Find the good and cheer loudly. Listen to Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Church, how would this change the discussions, these relational mess insights that we're gleaning? How would it change the discussions going on in our land today? Suspicion abounds. The dividing wall of hostility is having bricks thrown up faster than you can, can even con- conceive of it. It's being stirred up by a host of voices from all kinds of diff- different places. Think about the police. Think about rioters. Think about government. Think about media. Probably every one of us immediately can put in our minds good, hardworking people in each of those categories that we go, man, that's someone I can get behind. There's much to celebrate in what's going on right there. How can we get behind what's good and, and not behind what's bad? Suspicion is raging right now. What if we just replace suspicion with trust? We trust God. Does God raise up and bring down leaders? Absolutely. Read your Old Testament. God can work even through wicked leaders. He brings them down. He raises them up. He grants authority to government. He grants authority to the police. Are people going to let us down in these? Yes. Don't look to either one of those as your Savior. Look to Jesus as your Savior. God sees and God will repay. You get on with the mission at hand. A righteous harvest is available for those who do the hard work over time. Opportunity abounds. If you think there's something wrong with the police... Go be a police officer. We have someone in our church right now who's doing that. We have kids that aspire to that. That's a good thing. Is government a mess in your mind? Pray for them. Go get into civil service in those ways. Bring the light of Christ into those areas. Be salt and light that infuses every aspect of it. Easy to point at entertainment and say, well, they're the ones messing it up. Go be a force for good. Go celebrate good in the medium of film. Opportunities abound right now to point people to God. Is there comparing going on? How much tit-for-tat, point-counterpoint slogan battles do you see going on? It's everywhere. How much painful comparing has social media caused? What if we just flip the script on that? Instead of using social media to to get down or prideful in our own minds, what if we flip the script and we use social media for joyful celebrating? You know, social media is a powerful tool for joyfully celebrating good that, that is around you. Go look for it and get on it. 
What would it look like to celebrate everything you can about the people around you? What harvest of good would come from a whole church family that cares little if people visit our website, like our website, get behind our brand, but instead is a church community that gets behind the image of God in people, begins to celebrate them. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. What if we were to come and celebrate the good that we find wherever it is, knowing that that comes from God? I want to be part of that kind of community. You know, there's no need to turn tables in outrage because people are doing what comes naturally to them. Doesn't mean we shouldn't act. Doesn't mean we shouldn't move on things. But don't just get sucked into what you're being told to do. Live as a supernatural community. Jesus comes into our mess, meets us in our mess, doesn't leave us or send us away in our mess. You and I have a choice to make. make. It's not once for all time, it's every hour. Am I going to live as a servant the way Jesus taught me, or am I going to continue to climb and push for advantage, push for control, push for clinging to whatever I have? Or am I going to, like Jesus, become a servant of all? Progress is what we're talking about, not perfection. One degree of glory to another. This is a profound decision you make every single hour of every single day. And life and death are at stake. Life and death of your relationships. Life and death spiritually. Next week, we're going to look at Peter, who proves once and for all that failure is not fatal in Jesus' economy.